Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. A Fascinate Productions podcast for drug science. Today we'll be discussing the topic of drug testing at festivals. I'm joined by Professor Fiona Misham, who set up the drug testing facility The Loop. Anna Wade from Boomtown Fair, one of the early adopters of festival drug testing in the UK. And Janine Milburn, whose daughter sadly died in 2017 at Mutiny Festival from an accidental drug overdose. Drug testing is controversial. There are many people in favour, but there are still festivals yet to endorse the practice. Through this conversation, we'll try to unpick the challenge and plot a way forward for people in this country to use drugs in the least harmful way possible. Festival attendance in the UK is growing year on year, with a 12% increase from 2017 to 18. Festivals like Glastonbury have helped make the UK the global musical force that it is today and contribute over £2 billion to the UK economy each year. But some festival attendees are looking for a different sort of high, a high that music on its own might not provide. They use a variety of substances to have a good time. So, while here at the festival, have you taken any drugs? Yeah. What sort have you taken? Well, uh, a couple of pills, uh, ketamine, and um, uh, some coke, yeah. I think, that's, I think that's it. But these drugs come with risks causing a number of deaths across the festival scene each year. A 26-year-old man has died after taking the drug ketamine at the Glastonbury Festival. Police say he suffered a severe reaction and have ruled out the possibility of a bad batch of the drug. 18-year-old Georgia Jones. In a statement online, her mother said Georgia died yesterday due to complications after taking two pills at mutiny. She went on to say, My little girl was 18 and full of life. Boomtown Festival has suffered four drug-related deaths since it started in 2009. Security search punters on the way in, but admit it's impossible to stop everything getting in. So this year, they're trying a pioneering new method to try and keep people safe. The drugs testing facility, The Loop, allows people to find out what's really in their drugs and make informed decisions on whether or not to take them. And if they do, how much do they take? Here's Fiona Misham, who manages the facility. Um, we don't enter into this lightly, and we're not trying to encourage drug use or increase drug use. We're trying to flag up the dangers of drug use. Most of the people who come in our tent will have already bought drugs, smuggled the drugs in, and be intent on taking them. So our view is, if 100% of our service users were planning on taking the drug beforehand, we can only improve on that figure by reducing it. Um, so in a way, we see ourselves as the last line of defence. Reading and Leeds Festival were also set to host The Loop, but pulled out saying this approach could be misleading. The view of many others, however, is that you cannot stop people taking drugs and that providing people the information to do it safely is the responsible thing to do. Because it's worth knowing this stuff as well. We need to, we're a community here, you know, and we need to be wise. Drugs are dangerous. You need to look after each other, don't mix it, know what you're doing, and just enjoy yourself and have a beautiful weekend, yeah? So I'm going to kick off by asking Fiona, Fiona Misham, who's uh, you've already heard in the intro, who's pioneered drug testing through her organisation called The Loop. So Fiona, get us off, please. Get us off to a start. Tell, explain to us what drug testing is, how you do it, uh, how it's grown over the last few years. 
Okay, thank you, David. So drug testing or drug checking is nothing new. It's been going for nearly 50 years. It started in California in the mid-1960s, where they tested LSD and heroin in local community services. It expanded in Europe uh, across the last 25 years or so, and we introduced it in the UK in 2016. The idea with drug checking or drug safety testing is that there's a forensic analysis of a substance consultation or counselling to let somebody know what that substance contains uh, and that information is conveyed to drug users with the primary aim of harm reduction. So the idea is that you identify substances of concern, contaminants, adulterants, any particular variations in purity and you can feedback those results direct to the service user, to the drug user, direct to emergency services on site but also off-site to regional, national or international early warning systems. And how many festivals uh, in the UK have the loop been to? So we introduced drug safety testing at two festivals in 2016, then to three festivals in 2017, uh, and seven festivals in 2018. And also we had five city centre events as well. It's worth saying that it isn't just confined to festivals. And in fact, in the Netherlands, which has the longest running drug drug checking service, they don't test at festivals anymore. They test in about 30 different city centre services. Okay, we'll come back to city centre testing in a minute, but let's let's just learn a little bit more about what it takes to do testing at a festival. You said you were seven festivals last year. How do you actually organise it? How how does it work? At The Loop, we've really tried to set a high standard in terms of introducing the service in the UK. So we've aimed for a gold standard, and by that I mean that we have about 20 postdoc chemists come on site, alongside about 20 experienced healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses, a pharmacist, psychiatrists, and we also have a lab with about five different types of analyses. So the idea is that we can uh, test a substance to the best of our ability in the shortest space of time to get the most accurate results. But obviously it's quite a challenge to bring a whole lab on site in damp and muddy British festivals uh, and to be delivering that service, but that's what we've been aiming for. So it's quite a logistical challenge. It sounds uh, extraordinarily difficult. How, how do you fund it? How do you go about pulling it all together it sounds extremely difficult so we've got um we're a non-profit a cic and we have multi-agency funding so we often have funding from the festival sometimes from the police sometimes from the local authority but probably the biggest investment is in our volunteers that we have volunteer staffs uh, staffing of over 500 volunteers volunteer professionals so that's probably the biggest uh, input in terms of investment and i think what's happened is that as the loop's grown Gradually, festival goers, more and more festivals goers have known that our service is available. And so we've become increasingly in demand. And somebody did start a hashtag saying, no loop, no go, saying, (laughs) don't go to festivals if the loop isn't there. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on being so successful. And uh, how many are you going to do this year, do you think? Uh, We don't know, actually, because we're sort of veering away from festivals. So it remains to be seen. And we're still at the sort of negotiation and contractual stage. But I think one of the ideas for us is that we can reach more people by having city centre testing rather than take the lab to the festival. um, People come and travel to our lab. Okay, so we'll come back to that in a little while. So we have Anna here, who's from Boomtown, one of the festivals that has welcomed and endorsed the uh, the loop testing. And I can say it was I was there last year, and uh, it's it's definitely a hugely impressive festival. It's a bit too big for someone of my age, but uh, but also very impressive the way you had the, the testing set up. Tell us a bit more about why Boomtown wanted to get into bed with the loop. 
Well, thank you first for saying our festival is very impressive. One of the main reasons why we wanted to engage the services of the Loop was, as it mentioned in the uh, in the intro, there we've unfortunately over the years suffered a few drug-related fatalities at the festival, and I think it was just each and every single time that's incredibly heartbreaking for everybody you put on an event for people to come and have the best time of their lives not you know not to end in tragedy um and so we really had this incredibly strong mindset that we wanted to keep everybody as safe as humanly possible we'd always run the kind of zero tolerance approach of working with the police and having you know having really strict searches at the gates with amnesty and police sniffer dogs at the gates but then also within the festival site as well we'd have drug spotters and you know the usual security and policing effort around the site but it just it wasn't working at all we weren't nobody was engaging with us nobody was listening to us when we're saying don't bring drugs in it's illegal because I think you know as as is the the kind of saying goes you can get drugs into a prison you can get drugs into a festival site you know we, we are essentially a temporary city in a greenfield and as much as we want to keep that safe and keep drugs out it is essentially a really really impossible challenge so after experiencing the fatality in 2016 we really wanted to go back to the drawing board of our local authority and the police and the way that we were approaching our drugs narrative really at the festival and wanted just to do and explore every single option we possibly could to change this and to be able to speak quite openly and frankly with our attendees about obviously they're illegal we don't want them coming in the festival but we acknowledge that they do get in the festival so how can we keep you safe and how can we educate you and inform you and support you in your decisions to make sure that you fully understand the risks that you're taking what you might be putting in your body what the negative effects of that could be and how to safeguard yourself if you once you've been given all of that information if you then still choose to go ahead with it the fact that we are there to support you that our security aren't scary that our welfare teams are on site to help you and and to just basically give people some basic tools and understanding and awareness of what they should actually be doing if they make that choice. Um, And it really felt that the service that Fiona and her teams provide with with the loop was the absolute best way to engage in that conversation because it was acknowledging that they get in but really raising this huge awareness of the fact that they're incredibly dangerous and I think there's such a lack of education and access to drug information and how to use them if you are going to make that decision how to do it to safeguard yourself in general society there's just hardly anything out there so a lot of people just rely on what their friends' experiences are, and if they've got older friends or friends that have maybe started experimenting with drugs before them, they kind of have to go from that because there's nothing else out there. So we really wanted to take responsibility over that, take responsibility over the narrative and just accept that they get in. We'll still work with all of the local authorities and the police to keep them out and ensure that everybody in attendance is aware that they are still illegal. But if they do then make decisions that we've given them as many other options to actually be able to safeguard themselves and make really informed decisions that they're aware of what they're doing. And was that a difficult decision to make? Because we've heard that some festivals have actually come to the opposite conclusion. Well, I think we're very, very fortunate in the fact that we're a fully independent festival. So we don't have to go through other kind of investors or anybody like that to no. make those decisions. We're, we're still run and owned by the two guys that started it. 10 years ago so we're really fortunate in that way and then also we work very closely with Hampshire Police as well and um, the local authority and I think because of 
the narrative around Boomtown was was very prevalently about the the drugs at our festival. It's, there's a huge amount of things going on there. It's, it's an amazing, creative, theatrical hotspot. But unfortunately, the thing that's hit the headlines for Boomtown over the years, especially over those those um, those the, the drug death years, is that it is a festival that suffers from drug-related issues, which we're not alone with that at all, but that's been the narrative that we've been given. So we really wanted to make sure that we were almost kind of taking that and turning it around and be like, okay. Being ahead of the game. Yeah, well, kind of owning our own voice in that one. It's like people are associating with us with drugs. Let's try and actually use this and try and be like, okay, yes, there are drugs at our festival, but this is what we're doing to make sure that people are safe and that we're talking about it. And I think kind of from what we've discussed, it's like, openly having conversations about drugs that a lot of people don't really feel that they're in a position to be able to and it's still a very controversial subject and something we're fully aware that we're kind of maybe poking our head a bit too far above the parapet at times but it's so important people try to stop you Again, we're quite we're quite fortunate in the fact that there is nobody that we're, I mean we have to be careful in in certain respects because of the fact that it's still a grey area. I think Fiona will probably be able to go into this a bit more than I will because it's her, her area's expertise more than mine, but it's still not fully legal in certain respects or fully understood in terms of actually the benefits of the service that's been provided as well. So it's, I think we're all right. it's still a controversial subject. I was in Australia just uh, last month and you know, they've started some testing there, but again, you know, some of the media seem to be very hostile, and some of the some so-called authority, you know, yeah. the experts seem to some of the politicians them, yeah. as well. Yeah, Fiona, I think you wanted to come in. Yes. I was just going to echo what Anna said, really, in relation to the fact that there's a real hunger for information by drug users um, in an illegal market. People don't know what they're buying, they don't know what they're taking, but they really do want to know. And the evidence of that is at Boomtown that we have queues of people who will wait two or more hours in sun and rain to come and use the service and we've, we test 400 samples a day at Boomtown we deliver brief interventions to 1,200 people a day and that's the fastest drug checking festival service in the whole world and that just says something about the demand really the desire for information It also echoes the point you made that you can have gatekeepers you can have smithered dogs but uh, if people want to take drugs they will Yeah they'll find a way and it's it, it's very important that we provide that service so that there are those people i mean i think fiona you, you estimated that the, then the knock-on effect of that of when you've had the one-on-ones and then they'll go and talk to their friends and then mm. they'll pass that information on and it was like something like times three or something per person you speak to and i think that that's really important as well because it means that people have this it's the ripple effect of actual factual information that's been given by experts rather than somebody on a chat room that doesn't know or somebody's mate told them this and they were okay because they tried this and it was all fine. It's just, it, yeah, it feels like actually getting that factual information and awareness out is, is one of the key components of, I think, the service that the, the Loop provides as well. Well, Janine, I want to come to you now, which is obviously your story is much less positive. Um, do you want to share it with us, please? Hello, thank you. Um, Georgia was 18, went to a festival. She'd been the year before, so I wasn't that worried about it got the horrible phone call from her sister saying mum Georgia's fitting she's taken something and that's when it all started um she was found wandering on her own by two other friends who fortunately knew her and both her sister and got the help got the paramedics we got there as soon as we could but from that morning I never saw her alive again 
as far as we're aware, from the pathologist reports and things like that, she took two pills and that was it. And they were just extremely high dose. Um, there was nothing nasty in them. They were, as you would expect to find, MDMA pills. But just the dose of it was high, which is why I think you need things like testing if it's the thing you go and do they'd have got their pills they were going to go and do it anyway they could have got it tested she'd have then known hopefully that it was high dose we really advise you don't take it and maybe she'd have thought twice um as far as i'm aware the only education she had was again from listening to friends my mate took 10 pills the other night and that's what they hear they don't hear the you should take a tiny bit at a time, see how you do. This is how long it takes before you feel anything. No one gives them that information. Again, as far as we're aware, she put two of these pills in her mouth at the same time. So she had no hope, no chance, no nothing. If maybe she'd have done it properly, she might have had time to maybe feel the effects um, and then say, no, there's something wrong with this. She still could have ended up with brain damage or something with the strength. But if they have the testing, if they have the knowledge, they can make an informed choice. And instead of going in totally blind, these kids are going to do it anyway. And also, I think as, a, as an adult, as a parent, we don't know enough. I didn't know what MDMA was. I didn't know it was ecstasy. I'm, I'm not naive with drugs, but I haven't got a clue. Uh, it's only since her death have I looked into things. What have you discovered? It's a big, scary world out there. And there's, with the internet and technology and everything else, it's even scarier than it was when I was a kid. It's easier to get things in from abroad, to bulk these things up. It's the fatal ingredients, the fentanyl at the moment. Perhaps we'll come back to that a little bit later on. But yeah. What have you been doing? I gather you've developed a, a sort of phrase... I always used to say to the kids, be good, be careful. And and that is what I said to them every single time. I don't know what they're doing when they go out, when they leave the door, same as my parents never knew. But if you're going to do something, make sure you do it as carefully as you can. Since Georgia died, I've set up um, Don't Go With The Flow. Um, basically, it is to educate people somewhere where people can talk about drugs, recreational drugs, and hopefully we are working on getting programmes into schools locally. I know a few other people do it, but I think all schools should be doing it. The local response to you? What have your neighbours and friends said? Friends and people that know me, brilliant. I've had so much support. It's been amazing. Yesterday I was talking to someone from Scotland. I mean, it's, it's travelled quite well. On the other hand, you do have a lot of negativity because you do still have this stigma with drugs. And I've been told awful things, things that I wouldn't repeat to anybody. I don't know where these people get what they say from, but to put it bluntly, a lot of the time you're told it's, it's your fault, it was your parenting, you don't do drugs, drugs are bad, didn't you tell your children this? Well, of course you do. Um, and again, I think this is where, with the education in schools, I'm hoping to bring in parent talks so the parents realise what's going on. I mean, at festivals, you get the, a collection of dealers, kids. It's all exciting. They're, they're buzzing anyway. Let's go and do something we wouldn't normally do. And it affects every kid. It doesn't matter if you're a grade A student or a school dropout. It doesn't matter if you're rolling in money or scraping the pennies. 
It doesn't matter. And I mean, drugs will be sold at these festivals dirt cheap, on offer, two for one and, and things like that. Would you say that the majority of parents are in favour of testing or are there still a lot who are holding out and thinking prohibition, saying no is, is the right answer? I think people are leaning more towards um, the education and the testing, yeah. definitely. Like I said, I, I've learnt so much. I've learnt how easy it is for kids to get hold of these drugs, for starters, um, which I didn't know, I didn't realise. And uh, talking to children since, it's, the problem's getting worse, especially these last two, three years. Kids would rather take drugs than drink alcohol. That is the main thing now. With everything, legislations and all that, alcohol's harder to get hold of. It's extremely expensive at times, especially, again, at festivals. You're talking £8 for a drink of alcohol. You could get two tablets for a fiver. And if they're as they should be, that'll keep you going all night. If you're a kid that's a bit strapped on cash, what are you going to do? I know I'd go for the two for a fiver. Um, then spend 50 quid on alcohol. It's that's what they're up against. Kids don't think rationally. Their brains don't go that way. Ours never did. And I think people forget that at times and they need as much help as as much help as they can at, at that sort of time. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's tough. Thank you. So we've already touched on the, the, the fact that there are tensions between there are people who are against testing on sort of moral grounds and there are also others who are against testing because it's difficult and they have to go through loops with the local law and the local authorities. Fiona, just tell us what actually you've got to do to get permission to do testing. Yes, yeah, so um, I probably started the negotiations in around about 2013-14 and started off testing behind the scenes, having a lab on site originally at nightclubs and then at festivals so that we could test samples which were the result of a medical problem or seizures or confiscations or the amnesty bin contents so that we could get as much information about what was circulating on site. And I think once we showed the value of having a lab on site, we then said, well, the missing piece of the jigsaw here is that the general public can't uh, access that service but should, and that's what happens in Europe. So we made sure that we started off by having the support of the police, of the festival... Uh, and then our, uh, also public health and sometimes the local authority if that was needed, and basically to get all the different stakeholders, all the different organisations that are involved with setting up and delivering a service in a festival, um, for them to all agree that we could be doing the testing on site. So it was probably a couple of years of negotiations and testing behind the scenes before we were able to get that final piece of the jigsaw, the public, uh, to be involved as well. And I think we've proceeded fairly cautiously um, over the course of the last three years gradually building up the service but I think it was important to do that to take the um, the stakeholder support with us um, to take the press support and I think the general public support so I was really pleased that Janine said that she thought parents are supporting as well and that has definitely been um, my experience as well I get quite a lot of emails from festivals going thanking us for being there but I'm also getting more and more emails from parents thanking us for the service, saying that their their kids going to a festival, they don't know what they're going to be doing there, but they feel more reassured to know that the loop's there. So um, yeah, it's it's quite a it's been quite a prolonged process. But I think what's going to happen now is that will speed up as we've been able to show the the success. I hope of having the loop on site at a festival. So I think it becomes easier and easier to persuade different leisure events that there's a value to having testing there. But. It Am I right in thinking that in all cases there's an override? You can have a veto from the local police or 
the local landowner. Is that right? Um, yes. Yeah, so you'd have to get, we, we would get all of the stakeholder support um, and we would never operate without the support of the police. Um, that wouldn't really be tenable. Um, but we wouldn't really want to operate without the support of the other stakeholders as well. So that's been what we've aimed for. We, sometimes you haven't got the support, have you? I think you were telling me... Was it Leeds a couple of years ago? They refused to have you there? Yeah, so um, that was quite an interesting case where it was the council um, oh. who decided not to. And because they have the licence, it was decided that uh, they they didn't want to have the, the testing on site. But I think, I think it's because it's quite a complicated negotiation and because it was still the early stages, people were yet to be convinced of the value of having the testing on site. But what I think has happened is it's become more and more the case that we can prove now that we reduce drug-related harm on site we can show that we reduce hospital emissions, um, but also we've shown that there hasn't been uh, any negative effects, that we've, um, we've produced a, a, a professional service that hasn't had any sort of unexpected, unintended consequences. Because I think at the first, when you introduce a new and controversial service, people aren't really sure of the outcomes. And I think one of the things, one of the concerns, for example, was um, that people would see it as uh, the green light to go ahead and take drugs and there would be an increase in drug use and potentially an increase in drug-related harm. Um, because my day job, I'm an academic, we've been carefully collecting the data on this and now we can show that we reduce drug use because we identify the contaminants and adulterants on site. And drug users aren't stupid. If you say that somebody's selling boric acid instead of cocaine, then they're not going to waste £50 buying a gram of boric acid on site. So I think what's happened is drug use has reduced, harms reduced, hospital admissions have reduced, and so it becomes easier and easier to persuade the people who were probably originally uh, either critical or obstructive or, or just maybe neutral, really. So I think that over the past three years that that's changed and now the demand for the Service Act strips uh, our volunteers' energy. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I was quite, quite intrigued when I went to Boomtown this year how you had identified this particularly unpleasant, powerful, long-acting substance uh, called anethylpentalone and we're we're able to do a great deal to educate people about the good reasons for not to take this. Just to pick up on that point before I pick up on the previous one, the immediacy of the information that we can get out on the ground with having the close working relationship we have with the loop is is invaluable in that kind of way. And that's that's happened in the last two years. We've managed to get messages out on the ground directly to the people that you know are public in attendance to kind of warn them, which is really wonderful. Um, I think just to kind of pick up on the positive responses side of things, to it's been a really quite um, heartwarming thing to see the fact that the majority of the national press has been really supportive. We've not really had a huge amount of backlash anywhere from um, installing this and after the unfortunate events of mutiny last year it seemed like it was almost the opposite of that really, didn't it? It seemed like everyone was like, how on earth can you hold a festival without drug testing on site but to pick up from that, although the positivities are there on the site the the thing I've found that is a slight negative I would say as kind of loosely termed is that there can be quite a bit of confusion over the messaging because our messaging is don't bring drugs into the festival they're illegal oh but if you bring drugs into the festival we'll test them for you to make sure that they're safe and so people especially the younger audience and especially parents of people that are just um, 18 or so that are coming they get in touch with us and say that they not they're not really sure if their child is mature enough to understand what our messaging is it's almost a bit of a paradoxical situation because we're saying don't bring drugs in but then if you do bring your drugs in or buy drugs on site we'll test them for you which isn't really what the message is it's kind of 
trying to fit the amazing service that the Loop provides in with the current drug laws makes it just this big clash in a way of trying to educate people in this open and honest forum and way but when the rest of society is going drugs are bad don't do drugs drugs are illegal and we're also saying that as well so although the service itself is incredible and also on the ground it is really effective the pre-event messaging and the messaging that kind of comes around with that is still I'm still yet to try and figure it out I think a lot of festivals are going down the the three p's route so the prevent protect and pursue um, route so that's more of a 360 approach so you are working in in allegiance with all of your local authorities to uphold the law to keep drugs out but then to keep people safe kind of how i set up at the beginning but the clarity of that messaging is something that i still think needs quite a lot of work in terms of making the most out of this service that is provided as well but that's going to come with education, isn't it? The more people it will, but talk I think, about it, the more, if it gets into schools, mm, it should become a lot clearer by then. Hopefully. hopefully. Yeah. And, and I think if you get them young enough in schools, I don't want to do the basic teaching of don't do drugs. It needs to be, if you are going to do them, this is the side effects. You will feel one of these effects. I know for me personally, I don't like, I don't drink alcohol. I don't like feeling ill. So that puts me off straight away. But a lot of kids, they just hear the good things that happen when they take drugs. They don't hear about what actually happens, the chemical changes and, and things like that. And I think if they had that education, they have their informed decision. They've been taught about all that. Yes, I want to go and do this, so I will go and get it tested. But I also think that testing point, if you've got peer pressure, there's a group of six of you, five of you really want to do it, and you're the one that's like, "Mm, I really don't know, you can go, well, I'm going to go and get mine tested. And then if you really don't want to do it, can I hand you this pill? And I'll just tell my mates that that it's really rubbish or something. But I suppose it gives them that other get out clause Mm -hmm. they don't have to all sit there and take these pills in front of each other they go and get it tested they can have their extra bit of support and then if need be go no i'm not doing that and i think people forget that side as well kids like soaking up information and the more you give them that's what fiona finds you know people are desperate for information when they come to you aren't they i think one of the things that people probably don't realize if they've not seen a testing service in action is uh, one in three people who use our service have already tried the drug and already are suspicious of the contents or have been feeling ill. So they're already wanting to find out what the cause of that was. At the very first festival we were at, we expected that our service would be very quiet on the Sunday and we were packing up and planning to go home early. But our service was besieged. And one of the reasons why was we had people queuing up who had been ill on Saturday night and wanted to know why. And the one person who was hospitalised from that festival came back on the Sunday, especially to have her drugs tested to find out what had caused her to be sent to hospital on the Saturday. So there's a real drive, uh, a real hunger for information, um, as I said. And so not everybody is looking to find out what a substance is before they take it. There's also a lot of people who want to know after they've taken it. But you also find that a number of people throw it away when they've tested it. Yeah, so um, when we started testing, we had no idea really about what was in circulation. It's an illegal drug market. Nobody knows. And we find that about one in five drugs are missold and are not at all what was expected. Uh, and sometimes that's other psychoactive drugs, but sometimes it's household cleaners, all sorts of things. 
sugar instead of MDMA, salt instead of ketamine. Basically, chances of selling things on sites at a festival to get lost in a crowd and make a bit of money. So we find one in five substances are missold. That's twice as likely to happen at a festival as by a neighbourhood dealer. So people are twice as likely to be ripped off on site. And that's a really important message to get across as well, I think, is people need to be really careful what they're sold on site because it isn't necessarily going to be what they think it is. But then when we tell people that, one in five people hand over more substances to dispose of and we give them to the police and they safely dispose them off-site. And then another two in five people will take a smaller amount of that substance after they hear what it is. And that goes back to Janine's point that it's really important to test for purity and to get messages about accurate dosage and moderation across. Uh, And then, yeah, 40% of our service users say they will take a smaller amount. So we hope and presume that then results in reduced drug-related harm on site because of that. If I can just share an anecdote from uh, from Boomtown, I, I sat in on some of the debriefing sessions and there was a, a young lad who brought in a pill specially to have it tested because he'd bought it a few weeks before and he said, I wasn't sure, uh, I think I thought it was going to be strong and he said, I took an eighth of a tablet and I was up for 36 hours and became completely paranoid. Uh, and I, I, he said, I, w- I wanted to know what it was. So he brought it in and, and the loop tested it. And it was this N-ethylpentylone, this very, very powerful, long-acting cathinone. And, uh, and, uh, and he, so he said, well, I'm grateful. I, you know, I've come to the festival and got it tested. on. And I, what shall I do? And I said, well, never take more than a sixteenth. <laughs> but I don't know if that was the right answer. For any, but it was quite interesting that, that so he'd actually smuggled it in to get it tested. And, and that, I'm using that just as a, a lever to, to start talking about testing outside of festivals and how where we should be going now in terms of testing in towns. So we've had three summers of very successful testing in festivals, but there's absolutely no reason why it should be limited just to people who are attending festivals. And I think we were, you know, we've been inspired by the Netherlands, which has probably got the gold standard of testing. They have a a publicly funded service. It's been going 25 years. They get a million pounds from the Dutch government and they don't test in festivals or in nightclubs. They have national network of testing centres of about 30, I think, uh, in the across the Netherlands. And so I think there are a few benefits to having testing based in these community-based fixed site services rather than mobile temporary labs. First of all, it's far more inclusive. Any drug using group can use that service. It doesn't have to be just for so-called recreational users, party goers, festival goers. Um, you can reach heroin opiate using communities as well. Secondly, it could be more proactive. I think um, if people are going to go to festivals or to nightclubs, they can be testing uh, ahead of time and therefore it's going to be more effective. It can be all year round, 12 months of the year, rather than just four days of the year at one particular festival. So last summer we introduced testing in city centres on five different dates and we trialled different locations. We were at drug services, community centre and also in a city centre church uh, and the church worked very well i think churches are probably a hidden gem for testing actually because they are central they're huge they've got the space for the lab but also i think they've got a certain gravitas and there's a tradition of sanctuary in a church so i think people believe they're not going to be arrested by the police but also the church that we used in durham city center for the testing it already had a really, really excellent relationship with some of the rough sleeping community nearby. And so they had out- outreach workers who accompanied people in to use our testing service who brought in samples of heroin for testing. And I think probably if they didn't have that pre-existing relationship with the rough sleepers, they wouldn't 
have just walked into a service off the street. So I think for all sorts of reasons, we can think about different locations for the testing. So that's one of the things that I'm interested in for the future. To my mind, uh, the Dutch model is uh, just so remarkably rational. And, uh, and now it's got such a huge evidence base. It, it, it seems bizarre that we're not racing to embrace it, but... Oh. That's politics. But anyway, let's not go there. Let's let's carry on talking about testing. Um, In your city centre testing, did you find examples of this new, very dangerous collection of opiates called fentanyls? And and, and how are we going to deal with those? We didn't. We do test, um, we use fentanyl testing strips, uh, the opiate testing strips. And for the opiates that were submitted, we did test for fentanyl, but we've never had a positive test for that. Um, So although it's an absolute crisis in North America and tens of thousands of people have died, you know, we're still in the hundreds here in the UK uh, and we've not found it yet with the loop. Having said that, we are testing and we're mindful of that uh, and it's important we keep an eye on that. What we did find though was uh, because we're testing the city centre, we were able to make use of the university chemistry labs nearby and we tested and identified a new very strong ketamine analogue, which is twice as strong and twice as long lasting that some of the students have brought in. They bought it thinking it was ketamine and that was really useful because we could flag up to them then uh, that they really, you know, they needed to take half the amount and be prepared that it, if they were going to take it, it would last twice the length of time uh, and some of them handed that over for disposal they didn't want to take it when they knew that okay well now i'm going to spend the remaining part of the podcast looking at some of the questions which have been sent in by our, our supporters and this is george asking janine he starts off by saying i think you're very courageous uh, i think we all endorse that thank you um, and the question is how can schools and colleges effectively help young people and what are the key messages you're putting out through schools and colleges education is the key to everything and i think as well it's it's, it isn't just schools it is colleges and universities i've spoken to a few people university age and it's the first time they've been away from home and sort of had to face life on their own so we have to remember that it is that age group as well it isn't just the young 14 to 16 year olds it is these university kids that are out on their own it's just basically getting this education in teaching them exactly i hope you tell them to read my book as well of course (laughs) and and remind them if they do buy it all the proceeds go to the charity drug science okay so always good (laughs) so anna sam from london asks why have some of the large festivals like Leeds and Reading not taken advantage of your service? And can you understand their point of view? Can I just ask you, can I ask you is there a sort of national grouping of festival organisers? Do you get together and talk about these things? Not so much of national, because um, the way that the UK festival market is split is um, you have a lot of them are owned by namely like three different big companies that oh. own a lot of the festivals in the UK. Oh. The association that Boomtown are part of is one called um, the Association of Independent Festivals. Mm-hmm. And they do get together. But I think as Fiona's kind of outlined, it's not quite as cut and dry as a festival organiser wanting to be able to do it. There's, there's a few other hurdles that they have to get through to be, to be able to implement it. And also from the independent festival sector, it is quite a chunk of your budget as well that has to go towards financing 
the service of the loop or that kind of an additional service because we see them in um, especially in boomtown we see them as an additional welfare provider so it's it's you're paying for an additional service on site as well so that's not necessarily financeable for all independent festivals because it's it's there's not a lot of money in independent festivals unfortunately so as much as it's a priority from a welfare and health point of view for some people it just actually wouldn't be that manageable but when we're talking about festivals like Reading and Leeds which aren't independent ones that's very much down to the overarching company and their their ethos their their own agendas and what they see works for their company so it's very difficult for me to be able to answer that because that's within their organization. One of the things I think to add to that is that we need to be looking at what are the costs of a drug-related incident on site and what are the costs of hospital admission and what are the costs of a drug-related death? And it costs the NHS £250 for every, every ambulance that goes to hospital, but it costs the police £10,000 per week for every drug-related death investigation. So if we can show that testing reduces medical incidents, reduces hospital admissions, potentially reduces drug-related deaths, then we can look at the savings from that. So I think this is about prevention. So whilst there might be an outlay in terms of the testing service, hopefully, and we've got health economists looking at this at the moment, we can look that it balances the budget and actually it will be a net saving, particularly for larger festivals, to, to have a drug safety testing on site. That will be the, that will be the sort of economic argument in relation to having it. Don't get me wrong on that one. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's an unjustifiable expense at all. It's just about the, the tight budgets of not my festival, but other smaller ones where it might not be such a welfare issue that they address on site, which is why they might make those decisions not to kind of um, finance it. But I think just kind of going back to what you were saying earlier within the, um, the model in, in Holland is the fact that it's actually funded by the central government whereas in this country obviously the onus is entirely on the private companies and entirely down to them so I think that's where the big difference here is it's just like because it's it's still it's still developing as a service and as, as a kind of accepted welfare provision within festivals but also city centres and then hopefully within society in general I think that hopefully the finance will potentially come elsewhere and not be down solely on the the passions and the, the will of the people that hold the purse strings really I think that that's where this conversation and where this this service should hopefully kind of develop and grow in the future years absolutely I think we want it to be part of a national publicly funded service I think the situation we were in about five years ago was this didn't happen in the UK public health wasn't going to fund it because they didn't see there was an evidence base to fund it and therefore how we were going to get it off the ground um, that it had to really be volunteers to get the evidence to show that it was it had any merit any value to then make the argument that we had the evidence to show that we could get permission to run a publicly funded service yeah. <laughs> so we sort of were in a catch-22 yeah. I think about five years ago we had to get the evaluation off the ground um, so yeah we, so we ran the pilots without public funding but hopefully now we're building up the evidence base to make the case to get the public funding yeah so we've got a, a few more questions so Laura from Cumbria asks of you Fiona what's your policy if a 12 year old comes to have their drugs tested yeah, so we use um, the Fraser principles in relation to that and the idea being that um, is somebody fit to be receiving the advice um, of the service but what we what we wouldn't do, if we had somebody under 16, we wouldn't just provide the usual service. Most festivals, festivals have um, some sort of a safeguarding policy in terms of young people under 16 and quite often have a specific service providing support. It, I mean, it really depends on the festival. Some festivals are only over 18s anyway, but some festivals, even if they're only over 18s, will have a children and safeguarding unit for young people who've 
got in, managed to get into the festival, even though it's only over 18s. But some festivals are family friendly and do have yes. lots of young people. So it would really depend on the service. But yeah, we, our view would be if they're under 16, that we will be, whatever service we operated would be in conjunction with the safeguarding policy and with the safeguarding children unit that was operating on site. Joe from Sheffield asks, how can we be sure that giving this advice isn't encouraging people to take drugs who wouldn't usually? I can imagine a situation where someone says to their friend, go on, have some. I've had it tested and it's fine. Obviously, that's a very illogical statement, but uh, what, what, what would you say to him, to Joe? Um, a couple of things. First of all, we don't encourage or condone drug use. Our service isn't about saying that drugs are safe. We're actually highlighting the contaminants, the adulterants, the variations in purity. Um, so what we found is that drug use falls rather than increases um, because most people using our service are planning to take the drug and we find a reduction in both a reduction in people taking the drugs and also a reduction in the quantity consumed after people use our service. I think the general view is that people are pretty shocked at some of the horrible things that they've been sold so it's probably the opposite of what that person says but the other thing to say is that across Europe we've got 25 years of evidence that it hasn't led to an increase in drug use and in fact the UK without testing has had the highest prevalence of drug use across Europe. And back to Janine, um, what age did you start talking to children about drugs? Personally I'd probably go as young as year six. I think they're old enough then to understand the basics. I think when they're young it depends on the individual a lot you have some kids that are like sponges and they want to know everything and they understand it um so just for an old man like me what's your six ten ten yeah about age ten yeah (laughs) um i mean i've i've spoken to a couple of mums one of them her son had gone to a park with his mates he was 14 he was found by a passerby on the street he was fitting his mates had left him they were all scared fortunately he was picked up in time and as far as i know he's still doing okay recently we've had the story of the 13 year old girl that died of mdma you've got drug runners as young as nine years old and unfortunately these are they're the facts it's not just adults it's not just teenagers it does go a lot younger and the more information we can give them hopefully the safer they can be absolutely um, here's a here's a technical question for you, Fiona. Gregor from Edinburgh says, "Can they test weed at festivals? What, do you even bother?" <laughs> um, we we test pills and powders. We don't test plant, uh, vegetable, or fungal matter um, <laughs> currently. But I mean, that's mostly because uh, people don't bring it in for us. Most people are obviously quite happy with the cannabis they're buying uh, but we will be trialling bespoke GCMS this summer um, and we will be able to test vegetable matter and I guess there is a growing concern of synthetic cannabinoids being missold yeah, as cannabis. Yeah I was wondering cannabis. about that Do you, yeah. have you seen any of those? Um, we haven't but we don't test vegetable smoking matter so uh-huh. I, I guess it's something that we could consider in the future but generally I think the people who go to festivals seem to be able to access cannabis that they're not concerned about it's the pills and powders that they're concerned about. So you're not seeing problems with spice at, at Boomtown? We've never seen a problem with spice at Boomtown, no. It's, I, th- I think it's, as Fiona kind of mentioned, it's, it's not so much a festival kind of yeah, outlet there, really. Um, and that's just anecdotal, but it feels that, that, yeah, it's not really that prevalent at festivals. Now, here's a question that's kind of partly directed at me, but uh, also for you, Anna. Uh, uh, Kirsty from Nottingham says, as alcohol is the most harmful drug according to the ISCD, that's the Drug Sciences Classification, 
not entirely true Christian, most harmful overall, but not to the individual, and often consumed by polydrug users at music festivals, should more resources be directed to prevent alcohol-related harm at festivals? Tell us what kind of problems you get with alcohol at, at Boomtown. Probably a similar kind of uh, issue that you would see in society in general um, on most city centres on a Saturday mm-hmm. night, maybe. Um, uh, what we do at Boomtown is on our drugs and safety page, we have quite extensive information to try and raise awareness of polydrug use, including what happens if you mix it with alcohol as well, um, and really drawing attention to the fact that alcohol is a drug and polydrug use is mixing alcohol with any other drug. And it kind of, we, we've tried to make sure that we've given people accessible information in a way that's kind of digestible and understandable and um, just so that they, they've got somewhere that they can go on our website to see what happens if you mix alcohol and cocaine, what's going to happen if you mix alcohol and ketamine. Using very uh, layman's terms, I guess, for, for, for especially for you two, in terms of just to make it more accessible for people so they can understand, but then also explaining a bit that like whole new chemical compounds can be created from mixing alcohol with any other drug essentially so we've tried to raise an awareness on that and that was something we did a couple of years ago and just kind of pull out what we saw with being the the major trends within our festival also the wider ones especially after the research that Fiona comes back with for us so um, that's one of the elements that we do we also have an incredible welfare team on site called uh, run by chill welfare and they have campsites roaming welfare providers as well so they'll actually go around we've got two different stations at the festival the stationery um, but then we also have the ones in the camp site that will go out and just kind of deliver um, harm reduction advice on the doorstep so to say. So we do have a lot of measures that we have in place to try and raise awareness of, of just how dangerous alcohol and drug abuse. Yeah, I was impressed again at Boomtown you had this enormous poster on the side of the tent of all the drug, kind of drug interactions of hundreds of different drugs. Yeah, I think it? that was one that the loop provided but it was, and, and that too is really impressive as well because it just shows that because we, it was quite a, um, a popular service, not everybody could get in when they wanted to but they could see that information there just to be able to digest what what, what, what could go wrong really. I should say that's oh, such a popular poster that it's the one that gets stolen the most. <laughs> <laughs> you should give it, give it out for free then. It's huge. It's, it is a Bit, but it's a bit large, isn't it? It is, that's right. <laughs> yes, I have a, a photo of me next to it. Wait, well, we have two, two more final questions. One's a question of definition, really. Isabel asks, I'm perplexed by the quagmire of vocabulary surrounding drugs, the term drug itself and drug user and person who uses drugs and addict and so forth. I would like to hear the panel's ideas on the most appropriate terms which carry the least stigma. So what terms do you use, Fiona? Yeah, there's a bigger question here about labelling and stigma. And I teach in prison every week. And one of the things that we say when we bring our university students into the prison is it's not about labelling the person in relation to a past offence. So, you know, somebody isn't a murderer for life and they're not a prisoner. So we say that they're, they're somebody who's incarcerated in prison. Uh, and so I guess the idea will be that it's somebody who uh, is a person who takes drugs, uh, not a drug user. So I can understand why people would shift away from drug user and towards person who uses drugs. However, with my academic hat on, I'm also mindful of the word limit on my articles. And it's just <laughs> it's twice as many words. And uh, the last question really is, is, is a very technical legal question. Adam asks, there have been a number of people in recent years who've been imprisoned for social supply which is giving drugs to a friend or partner, uh, and that partner has subsequently died. I think it was the case we've just heard in the press recently. 
then what effect does this criminalization potentially have on attempts to reduce drug harm at music festivals? So I suppose it's a bigger question than just um, supply. It's also about to what extent are people still frightened of being arrested for drug possession if they try to help someone who is who is suffering. Janine, did you want to... I did actually do a piece on this. Again, it's a lot of a general knowledge that people don't know. Mm. If myself and a friend go and buy drugs, my friend doesn't know the person, I do. I go and pay for it. My friend dies. I'm then the one in trouble. We were just two mates doing exactly the same thing. But again, it's that information that makes people like Georgia and the lad I spoke about earlier being totally left on their own Mm -hmm. because people are so scared of the repercussions. Yes, I think it needs to be addressed in a big way because they're not the drug dealer. In Georgia's case, we don't know who she was with. We haven't got a clue. So there is no police investigation at all. Do you have any observations for you about that? Well, I think part of the problem is the way that the Misuse of Drugs Act is constructed is we have this supposedly clear dichotomy between possession and supply and life is shades of grey really and in my research I found that three quarters of people who have used drugs at some point have technically supplied a drug as in they've given it to a friend it might just be that they've bought some more and they've had some left over it could just be sharing you know splitting a pill in half somebody could potentially be considered to be supplying drugs so I think we need to move beyond the letter of the law but also I think there's a concern that there's almost a demand for vengeance somebody's died somebody must pay it's a very crude sort of medieval idea as opposed to saying this is a tragedy to the whole friendship group and whoever might amongst the friendship group who might have obtained the drugs they're probably going to be equally as devastated by the tragedy maybe more so if they're the person who went and got the drugs from a dealer so i think we need to move away from this vengeance and towards more more compassion for young people really you've spoken a lot and very fluently but if there's anything not been said say it now be extremely careful it is all you can do to be honest if you get the opportunity to test something get it tested get your education in your head know what you're doing know what you should be taking know what should be in it stick together don't run away and leave each other if you're going to all be silly together you stay together until the end great sentence to end on so we'll do that thank you for listening and uh, this is one of uh, a number of podcasts that uh, drug science are going to do over the next few months so Listen out for the next one. Thank you. If you want to come to the live show about psychedelics on the 13th of November in London in the evening, you can get your tickets at drugscience.org.uk or follow the link in the description. If you have any burning drug-related questions, feel free to find me a question directly on Twitter with the hashtag AskDavidAnything. That's everything from today. Join us next time for a fascinating chat about medical cannabis. If you like this episode, please click the subscribe button and leave us a review. A Fascinate Production for Drug Science.